evangelicals say they care about this Bible. They say they care about all of it. And my and the thing about that that says to me is you suggest you really want to be subject subject to everything that's in there. And my question is, if that's your claim, then can I keep putting it in front of your face? Welcome to the newest episode of the In All Things podcast, where we host conversations with diverse voices about living creatively in God's created world. I'm your host, Justin Ariel Bailey, and I teach at Dort University, which is home to the Andreas Center, the sponsor of this podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Vince Bakehope. Together, we discuss what it means to reckon with race and to perform the good news, especially with respect to evangelicalism and Kuyperian neo-Calvinism. How do we reckon with racism, the shared theological hero from the past? And what are the resources for moving forward in the present? Dr. Bacote had a lot of wisdom to share, and I hope you enjoy listening as much as I did. Thanks again for tuning in. The murder of George Floyd in the summer of 2020 was a watershed moment. Even though we are in the midst of a global pandemic, people took to the streets. The Black Lives Matter movement gained national prominence and recognition. Confederate monuments came down, along with Mississippi's state flag. When asked by Ezra Klein how he was processing what he was seeing, author Ta-Nehisi Coates replied, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I see hope. I see progress right now. Whether these hopes were justified and whether real progress is being made two years since is a matter of controversy. Debates over the methods and ends of social justice movements remain heated and divisive. And yet, what is undeniable is that we are in a moment of reckoning with at least the history, if not also the abiding legacy, of racial injustice. It's easy to feel paralyzed in the face of it all. How can we begin to untangle these knots? Listening is certainly a good place to begin. But it also seems clear that all of us must mine our respective traditions for vital resources to move us toward principled pluralism and peace. But what do we do when we realize that our traditions themselves and the heroes that represent them are themselves compromised by racism? In my own case, I have two traditions in mind. The first is the tradition of broad evangelicalism, classically defined by particular commitments to scripture, conversion, the cross, and activism, but increasingly seen as a white political brand marked by social and cultural conservatism. The second tradition is Kuyperian neo-Calvinism, the Dutch reform stream of Abraham Kuyper, implicated by Kuyper's own racist statements as well as a troubling appropriation of Kuyperian thought in South African apartheid. What do we do when we see the sins of our own traditions? How do we reckon with racism in the theologians who have taught us so much, and in the traditions that have nourished our faith? And what are the resources for moving forward more faithfully? To help us with these questions, I took some time to chat with Dr. Vince Bacote, Dr. Bacote is a black theologian working in the Kuyperian tradition at Wheaton College, which is in many ways near the heart of the evangelical tradition. And while we didn't find easy answers to all the questions, Dr. Bacote reminded me that our shared commitment to scripture gives us at least a strong starting point for being suspicious of ourselves, for being critical thinkers, and for moving forward with a desire to listen and learn before we speak. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Vince Bacote. I'm joined now by our featured guest, Dr. Vince Bacote. Dr. Bacote is professor of theology and director of the Center of Applied Christian Ethics at Wheaton College. He is the author of numerous works, but the ones we are interested in for this conversation are two different essays, uh, one published in the recent volume, Calvinism for a Secular Age, which is about Abraham Kuyper and race, and another published by Brill entitled Reckoning with Race and Performing the Good News, 
which seeks a way forward for evangelicalism as it reckons with racial injustice. Dr. Bacote, we are honored to have you on the In All Things podcast. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to be here. As our regular listeners will know, this podcast is rooted in the Dutch Reformed tradition of Kuiper and Bavink, and we've had multiple guests who've reflected on that tradition's history, its gifts, and its baggage. And one of the most common complaints made by those who maybe encounter Kuiper for the first time, maybe they're reading the Stone Lectures, is Kuiper's racism. And it was significant enough that um, it warranted a chapter in the recent volume, uh, Calvinism for a Secular Age, uh, which reintroduces uh, those lectures. You wrote that chapter on Kuiper and race. And so I know you've told this story on many occasions, but maybe for listeners who aren't as familiar, I wonder if you could tell a bit of your story. Uh, first, encounter with Abraham Kuiper, both the the delight uh, initially and then the distress. Sure. It's important to note that um, I am what you would call a culture-affirming Christian, and I've been one for a long time. And in my Christian formation, um, there was dissonance with being a culture-affirming Christian. I was I was around people that were more culture-denying. And, um, you know, there's a lot of dissonance about that. And I did not have a way to articulate that Christians could affirm the good in culture. It was just an intuition for me. And I didn't have any language for that. I didn't have any theological argumentation for that. It really wasn't until I was in seminary where um, my interest in theology and culture really began to develop in terms of actually reading about it. I had heard, I had encountered Francis Schaeffer prior to seminary, but but it was really encountering Kuiper where I got the language, the categories for understanding that Christians ought to very much be engaging the culture. And so when I read the Stone Lectures, I remember those words about common grace in the first Stone Lecture, and which, which so strongly emphasizes the fact that it, it's our responsibility, you know, for this untrammeled development <laughs> in which we glorify God by our participation in the creation. And it was someone playing my music. The way that I I put it in my first book was it was an oxygen mask for me. Finally, someone articulating how you could be, if you will, um, theologically responsible in terms of one's internal life, but also theologically responsible in thinking about our public life. And so I had this theological rationale. It was great. Of course, the thing is, if one keeps reading that first lecture, one notices um, certain comparisons to a certain uh, narrative in Genesis with the sons of, of Noah. And Kuiper describes development going in accordance with the sons of Noah. Now, here's what you must understand, is that when I read that, I thought, well, 19th century, a lot of people thought that idiotic because it's, Can it's Canaan that's cursed, not Ham, to begin with. Um, so I gave him a mulligan on that. So even though, the, I mean, there was strong language about no impulse for higher life has ever come from like the, the progeny of Ham, which is very interesting because it's like, um, could you talk about Ethiopia and Egypt perhaps? Um, there seems to have been some development there, I think. Uh, so I gave him a mulligan on that because I thought, you know, just sort of common thinking about that, give him all again. Well, uh, I read the rest of the book. We're, we're fine. And then we get to the last chapter about Calvinism in the future. And at one point, he's, he's talking about the differences that there are among people and the creation differences of, of all kinds. And contrasting election and evolution, he, uh, he says, I think I'm going to get the quote accurate when I say this, to put it concretely, if you were a plant, you would rather be a rose than a mushroom. If a butterfly, or if, a, if an insect, a butterfly rather than a spider, uh, if a bird, an eagle rather than an owl, among the higher vertebrates, a lion rather than a hyena, being man, rich rather than poor, talented rather than dull-minded, of the Aryan race than Hottentot or Kaffir. Now, um, listeners who are interested can write me and I can show them on Google Maps exactly where I was when that happened, because I remember. 
I had to put the book down because I was ready to sign the dotted line. And this is my guy. I'm going to do my dissertation on him. And now I was thinking, whoa, what is going on? Now, when when I faced that in the Stone Lectures, I was really in a crisis. Because on the one hand, here's somebody playing my music. Here's someone giving me the theological permission for cultural engagement. And now, now it's like, wait, he's a racist. And there was all kinds of things going through my head then. And and so uh, I was very, very vexed. The gift, uh, and there's a short article in Comic Magazine called Gifts from Father Abraham, where I talk about this piece. The gift of that crisis was becoming a critical thinker as a result of it, because I really still wanted the benefit of Kuiper without, if you will, the undertow of the racism. And how was I going to do this? So in my vexation in that moment, I asked this question. What's the relationship between the value judgment that's made and that a value judgment that I believe includes claims? Even though he's not, somebody might say he wasn't making a claim. Well, guess what? Some kind of claim was going on there because he made choices again with using the term Aryanism and hot and tot and Kaffir. So what's the relationship between that? And between the part that's playing my song, all right, or for the and for those who are into like albums, you know, because there are people who are audiophiles, and maybe that's some of your listeners, you know, when you've got like most of the songs you like, but then, you know, you you bought the album because of one song, and then what happens is uh, you pl- you buy the whole album, and then when you play the album, you think, wait a minute, wait, 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 what's that song doing on this album, all right? That's what that's the question here. So, what do I do? about the deep cut that's the bad cut, right, (laughs) on this album. And so what I did was I asked this question. Is there, if you will, an inextricable relationship between the claims about race and what he says about common grace? And particularly about how, not just common grace, honestly, but even what he says about Calvinism in general being this great leveler of humanity, and and that does what obliterates slavery and caste and elevates women. I mean, all of these claims he's making in that first lecture, and even though he qualifies it by saying, you know, that the only hierarchy comes from basically the giftings of various people, etc., the hand of providence. The fact is, is that you're making a fundamental claim about human equality. Yet what we are seeing in that claim later in chapter six, and even later, arguably, in chapter one, is, well, you're not going where your purported beliefs about equality really should take you if you're, if you're going with what scripture, where scripture should take us on that. So I concluded, and I conclude still, that Kuiper's language about how common grace works to catalyze our public engagement that you can use that language of Kuiper, and you can use a lot of other things in Kuiper, and you can use those, and you don't have to bring along the racism. The point is, is that are those do those ideas, do those theological articulations require you to then have these claims about human development? And I would argue that they don't. <laughs> to talk about common grace as God's generous, preserving activity in the created order that makes possible our ongoing stewardship of the creation through our various forms of of engagement with the world that God has given us, that doesn't require me to have beliefs about any kind of philosophy of human development or any way of thinking about a hierarchy of persons on the basis of race as opposed to actually an elevation of persons based on our common humanity. So, in spite of Kuiper, you can use that language. And arguably, you can use him against himself. You, you know, if, if you're really, if the humility he articulates there, if you really articulate that, then say, like, look, hey, Abe, you're a genius. I get it. But guess what? Even you know you don't know everything and that you can learn from things, people that are different from you if you're willing to look 
everywhere that you should. And he was not willing to look everywhere that he should. So, so those things undermine the racism. Yeah, it's it's really helpful where you talk about reading Kuiper against Kuiper. And I think that's a really helpful category to think about what it means, as you say, to, to become a critical thinker of realizing what is it really, what is the treasure here? You know, what is, right, what is really right. the salient insight that actually you need, then need to go and turn it against Kuiper's, Kuiper's theology or Kuiper's praxis right. itself. Right. I wonder if you could say a little bit more, um, you know, you said he wasn't willing to look all the way or, or yes. um, perhaps if we were to update it, we're not always willing to listen all the way. And to go yeah. to your other book, Reckoning with Race, uh, at the beginning of that book, you have this section where you speak in the language of a, a courtroom metaphor of calling witnesses and listening to the testimony mm-hmm. of witnesses who right. bear witness to a similar story of, as you put it, dissonance or no, a delight upon joining um, a community followed by dissonance, then distress, and then finally this decision about do I stay? Uh, do I leave? Do I struggle? Like, what is it going to cost me? I wonder if you could say more about that, those four Ds and yeah. Yeah. Why is it so important that we take time to listen and to look? Sure. I think it's important for for one reason. First of all, um, I had to be looking at revelation five, nine today. You know, it says that, you know, here, here's this work of Christ to redeem people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And then if you look at the end of it, and they will dwell on the earth together. So it's not just the multitude and white robes. Even here in Revelation 5, 9, you know, this fulfillment, if you will, of the promise in, in Genesis 12, that people from all the earth are, or representatives, if you will, I guess, from all the earth, are reconciled to God through Jesus. And they're together. Anywhere you look uh, at that and take that seriously, you then have to be willing to say, Adding, if you really believe in depravity, which means that you know that no matter how much you know, probably even as the most that you know, distortions getting in there somewhere. Nobody expects their view of things to be a fully sanctified view. If you know that, you know you've got blind spots. You know if you read 1 Corinthians 13, that if Paul says we see through a glass darkly, how's anybody? having some kind of pretension of omniscience that that they know everything and there's nothing for me to learn in this big wide world. Which means then that I ought to be oriented towards a curiosity about those who aren't like me and be willing to learn from them. And here's the interesting thing. You don't have to torpedo your own tradition to do that. What you can actually do is improve upon your tradition by actually discovering that there are people who can enhance or enrich your tradition by what, look at the insights that they have. You know what it's like, actually? It's not unlike a marriage. You know, one of the things that I've learned in my 26 and almost, it'll be 27, June 17th, I know the date, that it, I've learned in, in my marriage, uh, my wife sees some things differently than I do and has some experiences different from mine. And maybe I can really see the world better if I'm actually listening and learning from her rather than saying to her, you know, um, in this marriage, I'm glad you've decided that it's really all about complete conformity to my way of seeing the world. In which case, of course, you don't have a marriage. You have a totalitarian relationship. And my point being is the church should not be a community where people in their traditions have a totalitarian faux omniscient perspective and they're unwilling to learn from others but often what has happened a lot of times in evangelical groups you have uh in in these predominantly white spaces minorities are excited about what they're learning people are excited about oh look look at all this bible or all this theology i'm loving this and but the longer they hang out they discover that of course it's not just about Bible knowledge. It's about the lived practices. And then, of course, those lived practices also include cultural commitments, political commitments, etc. And when those things start emerging, and people just assume that, well, of course, if you're a Christian, you're going to see things this way or do things this way. And then people are like, my relatives didn't. 
and then, when, when that's the case, and then there's basically no willingness to actually grant the, any credence to what th- these other people have to say. After a while, those people get to, rather than having the delight phase, they're in the distress phase or the dissonance phase. They get to the distress phase when that just keeps going on for a long period of time. And, and they discover that certain conversations are allowed, but not the ones that they really care about. If they want to talk about, for example, a faith that isn't just about what you think or just about your personal piety, it's how we think about the lived expression of our faith, particularly socio-politically, socio-culturally. Uh, and, and for some people, that, that gets to uh, a level of distress where they get to the decision phase where they're thinking, okay, I have to decide if I'm going to stay or I'm going to go. Uh, am I going to hang around here? And the point is this, is that whether it's Kuiper or anybody else, if we, all, if we all are honest for a moment, we'll admit this. We like our traditions. We get kind of comfortable with our way of doing things and seeing things. But then our comfort can perhaps morph into a kind of idolatrous iron grip on things where it's like, no, this is the way you must talk and this is the way you must practice and this is the way it is. And actually, it's probably the way it drops straight from heaven actually is what we want to say. And then other people, after a while, they say, I'm done with this iron grip enterprise. I have to get out of here. And then people are like, I don't know why they left. I don't know why they got political. When actually it's like, no, you got political. And you decided what was political. You decided what was allowable for political conversation, and you decided what was not allowable. I always like to say, going back to the marriage thing, it's like it's like my wife coming to me and telling me she's had a hard day, and then me saying to her, I'll let you know when you have a hard day. I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to know really what, what I can learn from you about whether your day is hard. I don't want to empathize with you. I want to let, I want to inform you about all of reality. And as long as you know, as, as long as you look to me for all of reality, then we just have a great relationship. And there are a lot of people who experience themselves in um, these contexts where they loved it at first. Because look at all this great information that I'm getting. But the expression of the tradition for some people winds up being difficult. And and so at that part of, of reckoning with race, I just thought it was important that people heard why people were dealing with great frustration. If I asphyxiate you culturally, existentially, and then I tell you, well, well, shouldn't you just be happy being like us? Should you just be happy with assimilation? Uh, then somebody says, so, so, so what you're saying is the cost of assimilation is my very self. Is basically saying that I need to shed my cultural skin in order to belong here. While you swim in the water of your cultural skin. And don't think about your cultural skin. And you and and then you say, why are you bringing up culture? Because when you're thinking about it all the time, but subconsciously. So when people are having the that dissonant experience, after a while, some of them say, look, I have to be able to just be in a space where I discover that it's that that there are things okay about where I came from, and that there can be what what is what is ultimately an affirmation of God's amazing creativity with, with human beings of all kinds, from all kinds of backgrounds. And, and what, what are the gifts we get from that? The beauty we get from that. And what, but when that's, but when people aren't experiencing that and they, and, and it seems that participation in quote unquote biblicist context requires the, the devaluation of, of, for some people, what seems to be everything about who they are culturally. That, that's a price a lot of people decide, I'm not willing to pay that price anymore. Especially because the people who are asking you to do that purport that they have an acultural faith. When really, they're, they, just, they are just in a cultural saturation that where they don't have to think about what, you know, what's around them. I mean, you're in Northwest Iowa. It's a, it's a rural context. It's, it, there are a lot, it's, there's a Dutch immigrant context there. 
I'm sure that there are some cultural distinctives about it. And it's fine. Just call them cultural distinctives. But when they're, when they're denied, or, or, or when the, what, what seems to be, in my view, an act of pretending, that this is pretending that we're just being human beings, right? If you're human, you're enculturated. We're all that way. Yeah, I actually appreciate, you know, being Filipino-American and being in a Dutch-majority context. I really appreciate that it's named Dutch. You know, it's not just, you know, I've been in other white-majority spaces where it's just, oh, no, I'm just normal. You know, someone, somebody will say, right. oh, I'm, I'm right. just, you know, right. Right. The, the fact that there is at least acknowledged a cultural story and a cultural history Right. That, that right. is relativized over against, you know, other cultural stories and cultural histories is actually quite refreshing um, yes. to me. It's when that story gets lost and kind of gets diluted into sort of this, yeah, something else that I think. The normative humanity? Exactly. Yeah, that's where you have problems. Let me pick up on that. Um, you said a few things there that I, I'd like you to follow up on. Uh, there's a quote in Reckoning with Race where you say, you're talking about the failures of evangelicalism. And you say, what if we, instead of regarding the failures of evangelicalism as evidence of essential criminality, we regard it as evidence of the frailty of mm. evangelicalism? I wonder mm. if you could say more about that. Um, yes. If it's so frail, if it's prone to this characteristic damage, mm. why have you decided, you know, so you move through that cycle to decision, mm. why have you decided that it's worthwhile to seek a way forward for a better evangelical theology mm-hmm. instead of as others have done an exodus out of mm-hmm. evangelicalism. Why, why not make a break for it? Yeah. Um, big pictures. Let me talk about the frailty part uh, because people, have, <laughs> when, I, when I wrote this, you know, one of the questions is, well, is frailty letting people off the hook? Yeah. I'm only human, right? I'm just frail. Right. Yeah. It's just yeah. frail. And, yeah. and, 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 and no, I'm not, <laughs> but there's a couple of reasons why one is, do I really believe that human? Do I believe in, in depravity, and that even when people are we're in a process of sanctification, this diminishing of depravity is is not always as slow of a process as we would like, and that other times there's the discovery of ways that people haven't even given attention to dimensions of depravity that need to be addressed. So frailty is a reckoning with the fact that humans, even in a process of sanctification are people that are in need of the Lord's transformation. But it also means that there are people that will show you, uh, even though they may not know that they're showing it to you, that they have open vistas of sanctification, or maybe for them, undiscovered vistas of sanctification that they have not addressed. And in their failure to address those things or to, or, or to do anything about those, their practice of the Christian faith then lands on other people in ways that are harmful. So in a way, all I'm saying is is the fact that I don't believe people are entirely sanctified. Therefore, they're going to remind you that they're not entirely sanctified. So there's that part of it. Second, there's the fact that no tradition, no community is a realized eschatological community. And you have to choose where your crazy people are. So I think that for all of the, the things that people are disappointed about, and I've said this many times, and I will say it again, you know, in the last five to seven years, there have been a lot of what I call secret decoder ring books about evangelicalism. And it's fine to me that they identify issues with evangelicalism, but the fact of what the movement is, is defined by being a conservative Protestant ecumenism. And because it is so diverse, you can't capture something that's that diverse by a particular thesis. And so I understand why some people will read this book or that book and they'll go, that was my experience. I'm like, I'm sure, I'm sorry that it was, and I don't doubt that it was, but is your experience the experience of all these people in all this diversity in this movement? And my experience has been, I've had great transformative, amazing things happen. I've had frustrations happen. But that also happened in the church I grew up in, which was before I even knew it, that there was a thing called evangelicalism. I was going to, you know, a traditional black church back back in Maryland. It happens, you know, when we have students who 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 migrate to Rome or migrate to the Orthodox. What do they all discover? But wait, this isn't the promised land? 
Crazy people are here too. Divisions are here too. Scandal is here too. It's like, yeah, get used to it unless you believe that there's a realized eschatological community. And even if you go outside the church, it's like, you think that outside the church is where all the nice people are? It's like, yes, they're crazy people, mean people, scandalous people within the church, but they're outside the church too. And so the point is, is that there is no safe place to go in any way in terms of communities, right? I'm not saying anybody, people should never leave. I'm making the point that sometimes the reason people leave is that their experience of a tradition is really so disappointing, distressing, uh, that they can think that the grass is going to be greener if they migrate to a particular place. Now, some cases it will be greener because it was so toxic. It was so dysfunctional. It was so antithetical to all the things that were supposedly being preached as good news that survival requires making a move. My point is that I don't think that abandoning the evangelical movement is necessarily what one needs to do. And so, and and big picture, the reason for that is evangelicals say they care about this Bible. They say they care about all of it. And my and the thing about that that says to me is you suggest you really want to be subject subject to everything that's in there. And my question is, if that's your claim, then can I keep putting it in front of your face? Can I keep putting, if nothing else, love God above all, which means that you've got to check all of your idolatries and love your neighbor as yourself. And there's no asterisk besides neighbor. And am I, am I really loving neighbors? Am I, am I, do I have a sensitivity for the ways that neighbors are actually antagonized in the, from the individual way to the international way? Am I sensitive to that? And then wanting to attend to that, at least pray about it. At, and, and, but where my agency enables me to actively respond to that. Am I willing to do that? And the point is that people who say that the Bible is their authority, you can keep putting that in front of their face. Now, it's up to them, their sensitivity to the Spirit and God, whether they're going to do it. But you can keep doing it with people that at least claim that the Bible is their ultimate authority. And so for me, I'm willing to keep doing that. Now, please understand, that does not mean that I'm that that I want to steward most of my time and energy trying to, if you will, appease people that say, in a, in my view, a neo fundamentalist way, people who say, "Oh, but I'm all about this Bible," and then they try to make arguments as to why you shouldn't care about justice and all these things. Maybe on occasion I might have a conversation with somebody like that, but more I'm going to have conversations with, if you will. The average evangelical that's in the pew is not a neo-fundamentalist. The average evangelical in the pew is somebody that wants to follow Jesus. And if we can get away from the noise, then let's just talk about something as simple as, hey, tell me about your life. Tell me about um, how you came to have your your sets of priorities and, and, and commitments politically and culturally. Tell me about the things that create concern and fear for you. Tell me about experiences that you've had. For example, I think sometimes there are people who, and a friend of mine told me this, African-American friend of mine who's a pastor uh, in, in Florida now. Uh, when he was out here, in, in, he was out in, in uh, Naperville, about 20 minutes from here, he was part of an event where he talked about his son, I think after Flanders, one, after one of the shootings, he was concerned about his son perhaps encountering some something negative with the police. And there was an older gentleman who was part of his church who said to him after they were part of it, he said, hey, I just want to know, that story you told, is that real or were you just using that story to make a point? Now, my friend took the path of sanctification and, just, and nicely explained to him this reality. But the point I want to make is, is like, why is somebody asking you if you're talking about being worried about your kids, whether you're making that up to make a point about race and justice. The point is, is that what does that tell you? That tells you about somebody who doesn't know the experiences of those people. And there are a lot of just just like I said with my wife's situation, 
there are still a lot of experiences about my wife's life for me to learn. There are tons of experiences within our own congregations for us to learn about other people. And by the way, that's with people that look like each of us, with quote unquote our own people, much less fellow believers whose experiences are different, who are different culturally, geographically, politically, etc. And so if there's that much for me to learn, then I need to be majoring on curiosity as an expression of love of neighbor rather than on thinking I know about them. It's like, it's like, how much do you know about even your own family? Much less about somebody you hardly know. Yet this, yet this is happening all the time. And by the way, it happens in, in all directions. There are people who are more to the left who think they know everything about people on the right, people on the right, they know everything about them. And my point is, is that, you know, I think evangelicals, if they're willing to really be responsive to the word that they say is so important to them, they're at least going to be sensitive to, to thinking about this summation of the faith that Jesus gives us in the two great commandments. And are you really thinking about, do I love God above all? And am I willing to ask what else is giving me an idolatrous temptation? Am I willing to ask how much um, I have challenges with love of neighbor? Am I willing to recognize ways in which I'm not sensitive to the ways that somebody else might be experiencing the antithesis of love of neighbor? To me, evangelicals ought to be the people that are most sensitive to that because they say they can, that they that they want to follow Jesus. And Jesus said, when he gets down to the bottom, all the commands resolve to vertically love of God above all, which is a positive way of saying have no other gods before me. And then all of our horizontal expression are ways of loving your neighbor as yourself. And are we thinking about really how do we do that? What you've described is, is true to my experience as well. Uh, as a person who's moved in more conservative circles, if I can make an argument from scripture, if I can show someone something from scripture, people are more likely to listen and, or at least to respect, they might not agree with it, but, but mm -hmm. that they're willing to respect the fact that I'm trying mm -hmm. to stand on, on scripture. And in your book, Reckoning with Race, you do note that that's a source of hope for the future is a commitment, at least an aspiration to reform our lives according to scripture. Um, but you also note that one problem with this commitment to scripture, what we might call biblicism, is that evangelicals are unable to acknowledge the fact that they're looking at scripture through cultural lenses. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so you say when somebody says, I'm just trying to be biblical, it can actually mean I am selectively aware of the role of my context in my theological reflection. Right. And that's that's so tough because it's so hard to know what your lenses are uh, right. when you're looking at scripture. And right. I know that whenever I start talking about culture, people always start worrying that I'm, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm looking for a way to not do what scripture says, right? right. That I'm using culture to relativize scripture in some way. Mm -hmm. So can you mm -hmm. help us with that? How do we come, sure. become aware of the ways we have already been formed, are being formed mm -hmm. by cultural stories, cultural norms, uh, as we look at scripture, uh, mm -hmm. and yet make sure that scripture is still, we're open and responsive to being transformed by by sure. meeting God in Scripture. Sure. The first thing is, is is noticing, when are we alive? Wait, the 21st century. Well, that's not the first century, so already I'm somewhere else. And here's the thing. Everybody likes to talk about contextualization when the faith is going somewhere else. But we, we, we are in a context. We have Bibles translated, so we have the Bible in English. The original languages of the Bible are not English, nor in, nor King James English, by the way. Uh, so we know that it's a translation. Translation doesn't mean that it's inaccurate. The point is, is that we know that work has to be done for us to understand what Scripture is teaching. And, and I would say, particularly if you think about to listeners who really like when their when their pastors or someone else uses the original languages. What are they revealing when they when they recognize that? You're admitting you know that there is a difference between the time in which we live and the time in which Scripture was written, which means you know that there is work that has to be done so that we understand what God wrote then, and which which is for all time, I believe, and and how it's going to speak to us now. 
we know we have to do that work. Or anytime somebody says, I want to think about how to apply the Bible to my life. What are you talking about? You're talking about how what the scripture teaches is put into concrete expression where you are. You're doing contextualizing work. And so part of it is just admitting what we already do. The second thing is to, is, is to understand that when I'm making, when I'm saying that people are selectively aware, what I mean is this, is that people, in fact, this is what I just said, people are happy to talk about how it applies to their life. They're happy to talk about how it applies in missions. They're not happy always to, to ask the question, how does where I am in the 21st century, in a post-enlightenment consumeristic society, highly individualistic society, how those things inform just the way I look at the world and go about my life. And the point isn't to always be just saying that all that stuff is terrible. It's just pointing out that it's another world from being in the Roman Empire in the first century. And so how are we aware of just ways that we assume the world works? How are we just aware of the assumptions we have about what we're going to do with our life. I mean, think about how quickly we communicate because of modern technologies. Um, the fact that everybody, you know, who can read can have a Bible in front of them. All th those are, those are modern assumptions. They were not assumptions that people had in the first century. The point being, we're in this kind of world. How are we aware of that? And, and, and we're in the United States of America. A country where, and this is not a bad thing, I think it's a unique opportunity, we have political agency, cultural agency, in ways that people have not had for most of world history. And that's even if you think that, well, we're up against it and we're, we're being marginalized by society, etc. It's like, yeah, but you can still vote. Yet, yes, you can still start a company. You know, I'm saying there are all these things that people can do. You, there are things you can do that are culturally formative that you might not think are culturally formative, but they are. There, you can be in the town council. <laughs> you can run for office. There are all these things you can do now that people certainly couldn't do during the Roman Empire. And so just the fact of that, the way we think about agency and the way we think about what it means to have a good life, all those assumptions are ones that are part of being a citizen of the United States in the 21st century. So am I aware of how the way I think about the faith may require me to ask, what is the Bible saying versus what is just being a good American saying? What is being a good post-enlightenment, whatever kind of postmodern environment we're in, person saying? <laughs> So we, we have to be willing to ask those questions. It's not The point is not first to create some kind of identity politics you know, battle. The point is, if you want to be faithful to God, are you willing to, to ask, what is it about the things that I assume that could be getting in the way of me actually being faithful to God because I'm actually more faithful to the American dream than I am to the way of Jesus? That's a question that we have to be willing to ask. So to return finally to Kuiper, you've obviously stayed not just in evangelical institutions, but you're working self-consciously from within the Kuiperian tradition. Yes. And, um, and so I wonder two things. Uh, for those who maybe have just started to discover Kuiper, maybe they're a student uh, and they've just started reading, what's one mm -hmm. thing that you would say – this is something that Kuiper gives you. This is a gift of this tradition okay. that you should take and run with and see, see sure. what you can learn about this. That's the first question. And then the second question is, Rich Mao has this great chapter in his Kuiper book where he says, Abraham Kuiper meet Mother Teresa. So the other question is, if you could introduce the tradition to one other saint, living mm. or, or deceased, mm. um, who would you want to introduce Kuiperians to? So Abraham Kuiper meet so-and-so mm -hmm. uh, okay. in, in the wider tradition. So what's the gift that uh, the tradition has that you want people to hold on to and carry forward? And then what's something that we need to receive from outside uh, sure. the tradition? Sure. So first I would say, I think 
uh, it's hard to talk about just one gift. Okay? <laughs> so I'm going to try, but but it, there may I may sneak in a couple of other things. Big picture from Kuiper, you can get a robust faith because he 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 wrote all these devotionals. He man, I've always put into practice what he was doing, but but he wrote them. He he did have he intended to have a deep personal piety. He definitely failed at it many times, but he intended to. And so he wanted to have a deep personal piety and a robust public engagement. The point is that is that the the private and the public are not at odds in him. And another way of thinking, another part of that is, so here I'm sneaking in the other part explicitly, or so I guess it's not sneaking, is here you have someone talk helps you to see how you can be politically engaged without being a triumphalist. I think sometimes people find out that Kuiper was prime minister, they go, oh, I see. He wanted to take over the world. He couldn't take over the world if he wanted to. He was a leader of a minority movement, and he only becomes prime minister after a coalition with others, including, ding, 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 Roman Catholic parties. So, the point is, is that when he's talking about political engagement, it's very clear that he is not saying that it's about the church taking over the world, but he's also not saying that the church should be completely disengaged. In other words, the people who are formed in the church, when they walk out the doors of the church, if, if their polity allows it, then they, they are people that, that ought to be Christian-informed citizens in, in, their, in their world. Um, to whom would I introduce them? There are a lot of different people, so that's really hard. But I'll go with, this just came to mind. I'll go with uh, a person I met once and did not know who I was meeting when I met this person. And that is um, Abraham Kuyper uh, encountering Gardner Taylor, who was the pastor of Concord Baptist Church in New York City. Um, an amazing, incredibly erudite. I mean, incredibly. Um but uh, I'm trying to think, who was it that wrote a book about Gardner Taylor? Was it Jerry, Jerry Alcantara? Alcantara? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think that would be really interesting because Gardner Taylor was a great preacher, but he was also a great community leader as well. And um, I met him my first year of my doctoral program. I visited this church in, I think, uh, West Orange or South Orange, New Jersey. And th this is so terrible. Um, so I... Cause I had, I'd never heard of him growing up. I grew up in his black church, et cetera, but he wasn't one of the people I'd heard of. And so uh, I met him and he preached, et cetera. And so I said to the person that told me about this church, I said, she, that's how the church was, I was great. I said, some guy named Gardner Taylor. Pre <laughs> Look at your face. Some guy named Gardner Taylor preached. And she's like, some guy yeah. named Gardner Taylor one of the greatest preachers in American of history. Of all time, yeah. yeah. <laughs> do, do you have any idea? <laughs> she said, you were you were around a great man. And now I'm thinking, you idiot. <laughs> like, do you have any idea about the, the gravity of the kind of person that that, that he was? Um, so, so I'm glad I met him. Um, but I think Kuiper, Kuiper encountering uh, Gardner Taylor would be very interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And I'll, I'll put links to uh, some of his work and the book by Jared Alcantara in the show notes of the podcast so that people can track that down. That's a great answer, Gardner Taylor. One thing I do think it's important to say, which is um, my encounter with Kuiper dealing with his difficulty uh, is not a unique encounter when it comes to dealing with figures. Here's what I want to say to all listeners, which is, any figure besides Jesus, the closer you get to them, the more you read them, the more you read about them, is the closer you get to discovering how much they really had feet of clay. And I think it's important to say that because often figures are introduced to us in a very flat way where there's they're either good figures or bad figures. We, we get a curated representation of who they are to begin with. Read this. This is amazing. And the recommendation of the figure almost suggests a messianism of the person. And then what happens with the closer people get to them is you mean 
they had nothing to say about these things I care about, or what they did say was weak, or worse, terrible. And the, the fact is, is that they have feet of clay. And, and and I guess the other thing is to say, even people that you, you might have been told were wacky, if you read them, don't be don't be surprised in reading them that they actually say things that are helpful sometimes. I, I like to tell my students that a person can be 99% wacky, but if the 1% is, is really good stuff, don't let anybody lie about the 1%. Go to the mat about that 1% of truth in that person. Even if you, if you say the rest, boy, was that out to lunch. But I'm not letting you think that the 99% gives you not 1% to learn here or acknowledge here. I mean, to me, that's what true critical thinking is, is where's the truth? Where's what is helpful? Wherever it may be found. And and a lot of times, we, we you know, again, we, we get presented with this figure gives you a lot. That's awesome. Uh, giving you a lot is not giving you everything. And, and the closer you get, the closer you get to discovering what? You mean their marriage was only okay? They weren't always nice. Or like Kuiper, they didn't groom a successor. Uh, well, among other things. He was a racist. He didn't groom a successor. He couldn't get over himself. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff about him. All that stuff is true, but there's all these things about Kuiper. Incredibly helpful. He's an incredibly unique figure. So there is much to appreciate, but to appreciate him doesn't mean that you have to messianize him. Because he needed Jesus just like we do. And if it's true, on his deathbed, what, as he's about to depart, what's he doing? He's pointing to the cross. So he knew, he knew his need. He knew his need. He may not have always acted like it, you know, in his more robust days. But um, when he's writing those devotionals, he knows. Thanks for listening to the In All Things podcast from the Andreas Center at Dort University. Original music is provided by The Ruralist, and thanks are in order to Ruth Clark, Shannon Vischer, Vaughn Donahue, and the production team at the Andreas Center. You can find us online at inallthings.org or follow us on Twitter under the name at in underscore all underscore things. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. And if you find our content beneficial, please help us out by leaving a review and sharing with others. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for tuning in.